The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. My guests today, CEO Mitchell and John Corr, continue to review Genesis. Today we are on Genesis 2. Gentlemen, welcome to you. Thank you. Hello. And perhaps one of you gentlemen would like to just uh, commence this with a short overview of Chapter 1 that we covered last week before we proceed. Well, last week we uh, covered uh, Genesis 1. And we mainly covered really the the activities of God in creation, um, highlighting um, the the greatness of God and the emphasis of the chapter on being uh, a general description of um, of the creation account. Um, and when we get into Genesis two, it's going to kind of narrow the focus more. Uh, but we saw how God. Uh, was the source of all creation and the sustainer of all creation and the purpose for all creation and and uh, just really highlight uh, the, uh, the the point of the chapter and the point of, of what Moses is trying to say uh, is to show how God is different and yet better than uh, many of our concepts of who God is and what he's like. And uh, that sets the, the tone for then the next chapter with uh, speaking of God and his involvement with creation of man in particular. And CL, I think I'd like to just um, start off that discussion we had earlier today uh, when we were reviewing the program uh, about the introduction of the seventh day uh, uh, at the starting of uh, Genesis 2 and, and why it's placed there just for the uh, benefit of our listeners. Well, let's be clear. The Word of God is inspired. The chapters and verses that you find herein are not. Uh, you do have inspired inscriptions, um, not these particular inscriptions. The inspired inscriptions that you would find are in the Psalter's writings. Uh, so um, the individual and individuals following who inserted uh, chapters and verse did so according to their understanding and for um, um, uh, easy use purposes, uh, if you will, utilitarian purposes. Um, but they are not most beneficial. That is not the original structure of, of the um, autographs nor of the early copies or manuscripts. Uh, you don't find this until centuries later after the writing. Uh, so really what we we have in chapter number two is not a second creation narrative, if you will. It's a further expostulation or extrapolation or exposition 
explanation, if you will, on chapter number one. But where you have generality in chapter number one, you have speciality or specificity in chapter number two. Again, you might look at this like a funnel. Chapter number one was a funnel in that while it started in the the generality of uh, the creation of the heavens and earth, it sought to get down to a very fine point, and that is humanity made, ladies and gentlemen, male and female, in the imagio deo or in the image of God. Uh, If that is the fine point of chapter number one, then one might say we're going to look at the finery of that fine point or the high point in that diamond. And now we're going to concentrate not just on uh, the general heavens and earth, but now a specific geographical locale within the heavens and earth, paradise, even Eden. We're not just going to concentrate on the generality of the human species, as it were, but a specific man, Adam, and a specific woman later to be named Eve. We're not just going to concentrate on um, uh, God, as it were, in generality as Elohim, all-powerful, but for the first time, we're going to be introduced to this relational terminology, the Lord God, or Yehovah Elohim. Uh, So you're going to move from generality to speciality or specificity or to a high concentration that's going to really lead us into the fall narrative, the redemptive narrative, and so forth and so on. As a theologian and academic, and this is going completely off track here, but have you considered how somebody today would write the Bible that would be very different to the way that it appears here? Well, if if the Bible were being written today, I mean, that, that assumes a, a great deal. Um, uh, if we were writing the Bible, I am certain that God would use if, if we were inspired to do so, as it were. I don't think that it's necessary for the canon to be reopened, by the way. Um, uh, but that's another statement or argument or discussion for another day. But there are several supporting points, I think, uh, that would not make that essential. Um, uh, but if we were doing that, you could be sure that he would not necessarily dictated, as it were, so that we would be mindless beings simply recording. He would use our education. He would use our sits in Laban, our situation or our context of experience. And he would then carry us along, at, along or bear us up as we communicated his word so as to protect his word to our environment, to our context, to our audience. And though they would be words of men, they would be words of men, as the Apostle Paul says in Thessalonians, that should be received as the words of God because they would clearly carry along with them the divine impress, or they would clearly be the vox dei, the voice of God, giving us the verbum dei, the words of God. And John, would you like to uh, start this off by looking at uh, the initial uh, verses of Genesis 2 and possibly, gentlemen, I might throw out that possibly the last 10 minutes of the program we could relate to modern-day circumstances uh, and maybe take into context uh, or take out of context certain uh, parts of Genesis 2 and apply them to modern-day life. Absolutely. Sure. Well, just just first of all, as an overview of the chapter, because uh, many times people look at chapter 1 and see creation. They look at chapter 2, they see uh, another account of creation. And what's going on here is you're giving uh, a better or a different emphasis uh, on the creation account. There's great differences, in fact, between the two chapters. In Genesis 1, you have, as CL mentioned, uh, Yahweh. Um, or Elohim, rather, being uh, the, the, the name of God that is being highlighted. In Genesis 2, we begin to see El, uh, Yahweh Elohim, 
which is the, the name of God that uh, talks about his relationship with, with people, specifically Israel in, in the context of the scriptures. Um, and so we begin to see that this God who creates the heavens and the earth isn't just a distant God. He isn't a God who's just so busy running the universe that he doesn't think about people. Right, right off the bat in Genesis 2, he begins with uh, dealing with people and, and forming people. In Genesis, 1, in Genesis 1, you had God creating everything uh, ex nihilo, out of nothing, probably you know, by, the, by his word. He said, let there be, and there was. But now in Genesis 2, he gets his hands dirty, so to speak. He forms man and crafts man. So he is intimately acquainted and involved with mankind on a historical level with Adam and Eve, but also on a daily level with people today. Uh, the the scope and the, and the focus is different in Genesis uh, 1 verses 2. Obviously, one is more general, two is more specific. Now, <clears throat> what's interesting is that in Genesis 1, you had mankind being uh, uh, sort of pictured as one who has authority. He says in Genesis 1, uh, let them rule over the, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and whatnot. Now in Genesis 2, mankind uh, is put under uh, sort of a uh, uh, is one who's put under authority. He shall not eat from this tree. So you have this tension that's going on. Okay, um, but in Genesis in Genesis two, we are uh, we are introduced with the fact that this is a time before the flood. This is a time before the fall. By this by the phrase in verse five that there's no shrub of the field, there's no rain that has been uh, been sent. In other words, it's highlighting to a time before the fall. Uh, and God begins to form man, and you have, first of all, the, 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 um, the, the formation of man, of how God uh, does this and, and gives man, uh, uh, makes man to a living soul, a living spirit. You didn't have uh, God placing man within the location of in the Garden of Eden. And we can talk about where that is and what that's all about. Um, and then he, makes, he gives man a vocation, a, a job, some work to do uh, with keeping uh, the garden, which we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, of of this area called Eden, and then he gives man uh, a companion. He gives man uh, a helper, which will be Eve, uh, and he kind of uh, establishes their roles uh, of what they are, how they are to uh, to relate to one another and to relate to uh, the rest of the, the creation. Uh, and this is sort of the picture of um, paradise that you have: <coughs> mankind, uh, Adam and Eve, in perfect relationship with with God, in perfect relationship with their environment, in perfect relationship with one another and with the rest of creation. So you have this bliss, so to speak, this, uh, this perfect environment in chapter 2. And unfortunately, chapter 3 comes along with the fall, but that's the scenario in chapter 2 as an overview of what we have. CEO, can I ask you, just for visibility and clarity for the listeners, uh, the creation of man and woman in, in Genesis 2, Why? Why immediately do we go to the creation of man and woman over any other beast or any other living thing? Uh, because, again, he's trying to deal with the specificity or speciality, uh, the focal point, the utopia, if you will, of, uh, of the creation narrative. Uh, if you remember correctly, the pronominal suffix, uh, the, the, uh, the ending, if you will, um, the nature, the language changed when we got to the creation of mankind in Genesis chapter number one. For the first time, you have let us completely distinct language 
from uh, the uh, language preceding that section all the way from 1 through 25. But suddenly when you get to 26, uh, there's something that's happening. God is expressing himself in a different fashion, in a different format. Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Well, why is chapter number 2 really important in this area? Because now what makes man special? Well, we learned earlier it's in his image and after our likeness, but we also learn the distinct care that God gave to creating mankind, whereas he said, let the earth bring forth this or that. As he was speaking earlier, now the Lord God undertakes great effort to form man from the dust of the earth and to breathe into his nostrils the breath of life, if you will, and the man becomes a living nephesh when he formulates or when he makes the woman. Uh, He reaches in to it's probably not the best translation, uh, uh, the man's side and into the rib area, but it really is that area of the blood in the side of some sort, and uh, he fashions the woman. Uh, so the reason for this um, uh, what sounds like a repetition. It's really not simply a repetition as much as it is a progressive repetition. So it intensifies so as to further the point of the uniqueness of mankind and God's uniqueness in relationship to mankind over and above his simple relationship as a providential caretaker over the entire um, planet as well as uh, um, his, his distinct care and carefulness about to the, uh, the, the human creature. You know, I, what I think is interesting is that <clears throat> he spends one chapter in creation of the whole universe, one chapter in the creation of mankind and their relationships, and then from chapter three on, of course, is the fall and then the redemption of mankind or the process of how God is going to re- redeem mankind. And I think it's as if to say, Here's what it was like, and here's what life was meant to be like, uh, intent, what God intended from the start. And, of course, life, what well, we live in a fallen world, and we don't see the world the way it was meant to be. You know, we see life the way it is. But I think God wants, and, uh, wants everybody to know that it was never made this way originally. I, I was going to follow up. I had this uh, um, very uh, positive um, uh, argument, you may call it, a couple of days ago with a very dear friend. And I think I may have mentioned it to you, CL, uh, a friend who said to me that uh, we we all as human beings are God. We are told that we are made in the image of God. There, therefore, we are all God. Is that more... Uh, sta- clearly, that statement is not true, especially now. But is that statement... Could you apply that statement more to this period in Chapter 2 of Genesis? Um, The statement, well, let me just first of all say the term that we um, are God uh, is panentheism or pantheism. Um, All is God or God is in us in this way. In a unique way, the Holy Spirit resides according to New Testament theology within the believer, Uh, but uh, the two are distinct. He's dwelling within the believer, but he's not assimilated into the believer so that the believer becomes divine. Humanity has never been divine. The language is like God, if you will, so that we bear certain similarities in characteristics as a 
result of the imagio deo or the image of God dwelling in us. Um, um, and in fact, that is one of the oldest lies of the book, isn't it? Because in Genesis 3, Satan says he knows that you'll be like him. Well, the trick is you're already like him. Uh, You're not going to become him. That's Satan's uh, fall because he tries to uh, exalt his throne above above the most high God so as to become God. Um, uh, How does this apply, as you asked, to this particular narrative? It applies in that we are certainly not gods. Now, I want to stop for a moment and do an excursus over into John 10 because Jesus says there, um, did I not say that you were gods with a little g? And the, the, the concept is a terminology that was employed to speak of them as lords, rulers, sovereigns, or judges, if you will, not to be spoken of as deities. This would have been certainly unheard of by the Jewish mind in the first century or even before this first century. So Jesus' words later on are not seeking to establish the divinity of humanity. Rather, uh, humanity is understood as existing in the image of God so as to bear the communicated attributes uh, of God. That is, those characteristics that he's chosen to share with us and chosen to manifest in us that say more about him than any other creature within the frame work of the universe are present and housed within mankind. I, I'm, I'm just trying to support an extremely weak argument that prior to the fall and Eve and, and Adam, that at that stage you could almost say that Eve was inspired um, to become a god that she could do anything that she wanted to so i'm i'm suggesting that that prior to that period in in chapter 2 that that maybe god had put us there and that we were more about god then than we ever have been since or after the fall and i don't know that i would say john you look like you want to take that one <laughs> go ahead man he's chomping at the bits there go ahead well you know there's a is, there's tension there there's great tension in Genesis 2 because you do have the sense where they're like God because they're made in the image of God. In Genesis 1, they're given great authority. They are God's representatives on the earth. They are the pinnacle of creation. They are over all the rest of creatures, and, and they are the ones who's put in charge of taking care of the earth. At the same time, though, at Genesis 2, they themselves are under authority of God. They are giving limitations Remember in Genesis 1, everything has limitations. The, the sea can go only go so far. The sky and the, and the land are separated. The stars can only go in their circuit. You know, everything is, has limitations, has boundaries. God then puts boundaries on mankind. Now, what's interesting is, is in one sense, they're more like God the more that they serve, the, the more that they submit themselves to God. But the, the instant they decide to sort of put themselves in God's place in Genesis 3, they become even less like God. It's 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 it, there's a there's a tension that's there that that's purposely there you, because mankind is partially just to finish my, finish my thought mankind has a part of them that is from God God breathed into mankind right becomes a living creature but then there is the the side of man that's from dust that's from the earth in fact the emphasis in Genesis two is the fact that mankind <laughs> has this limitation to him so I would say that the that Adam and Eve 
as as long as they understood their their God given place, they're more like God than when they decided to step outside of the boundaries of that limitation. So, and and I know the CL, <laughs> I'll let you come in, but my argument would be flawed because yes, I suppose that that they are more like God and and until they fall, but of course God really was reflected in Jesus Christ more than. It, God in fact, was, God was Jesus Christ. I mean, that. yes, um, Jesus uh, is God. Uh, there's a distinction in the framework of the Holy Trinity, so that He is not the Father, nor vice versa, etc. Uh, he is the Son, distinctly. Uh, the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit, um, and not the Father nor the Son. Uh, and yet, you have one God eternally existing within the framework of the mysterious three persons. Uh, what we refer to as, um, in Augustinian language, the Holy Trinity. Uh, or the triunity, if you will. But but let me be, be very clear, because while we're talking about the makeup of man, we need to realize his conditional unity. In other words, um, man is not a spirit being having a human experience. He's not a demigod. Um, um, he's not uh, that. When we talk about God breathing something unique into him, uh, later on in the scripture, it says he has placed eternity, if you will, in our hearts. Uh, the ecclesiastical proverbial writer uh, speaks of this. And and the concept is he has placed an eternality within mankind. Now, it is a conditional eternality. It is a qualified eternality, not an unqualified eternality like God exists in aseity. Let me clarify the language, if you will. If you will, God is aseity. We speak of that in theological circles. It is ah, the Latin negation Seity or self, he is of or from himself so that he is not dependent upon or existent upon anything outside of himself. Rather, he is the self-existent God. That's where we get the phraseology Yahweh or Eheya, if you will. It comes from or springs from the root Heya to be in the Hebrew. He is the existing one who will be who or what he will be, if you will. He is self-existent when there is nowhere or when, now or then. Uh, he exists outside of space, but he can interact in space. He exists outside of time, but he can interact within time. He is the uncaused caused. He is the unmoved mover, if you will. When we talk about humanity, we speak of this concerning humanity, that humanity has a beginning but will have no ending, if you will. Um, God has no beginning and he has no ending. So we have a qualified existence that once it has been started will go on for eternity, positively or negatively, but God will exist on an eternal basis without the qualification of depending upon anyone to uphold him. Concerning humanity, the Bible says all things are held together in Christ. In him we live, we move, and we have our being, says the writer of Colossians, the apostle Paul or Rav Shaul. But uh, uh, that is our being within the framework of God. God does not exist based upon us or in, in, in uh, essential um, um, uh in essential burden upon us. In other words, he's not dependent upon us in any way, shape, or form. When we say then, um, in, in further note, uh, that Adam is made from the dust of the earth, 
there is an aspect of us that was intended to be corporeal or temporal or was meant to be um, um, of this earth, if you will. And that is not just a temporal experience. That is a real part and parcel of us. The reason why that conditional unity is broken from our spiritual side is because of the fall. Death was not the intended thing for humanity. It is the abnormal stage for humanity. When we are joined again at the resurrection, we will still be human beings. We will not be another sort of beings. Being will not, will not become deity. Will not become divine. We will be again joined to our body. It will be a glorified body. But if you look at the text very carefully, it is a spiritual body. Body is the noun. Spiritual is the adjective. Anyone who does any language knows this. A linguist knows that the noun is always stronger than the adjective. The adjective is weaker than the noun. The adjective describes the noun and 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 not the reverse. As such, it will be a real body, but it will be a body that is spiritual in nature. Spiritual, not to say that it will be some apparition or ghostly body. No. Spiritual to say it will not be driven by the fallen Adamic nature that was driven toward the flesh, flesh being sarkos, flesh being the figurative language, not the skin, but that aspect that connects with the fallen Adamic nature of Genesis 3. As such, we were always human beings. We will always be human beings. Jesus Christ himself has chosen once to join himself with that human body. He will always be the God-man eternal. As such, we were never, nor was Eve ever inspired toward deity in an appropriate way, nor did she anticipate deity, nor is that the big trial of this life to see if somehow, like other religions believe, that we will go through this life and be qualified for deity. No, God is transcendent. He has his place. His place is untouchable. There are no applications being filled out in order to acquire the position or the post of deity in any way. Our great goal is not to become demigods demi-urges, not to become some kind of sub-gods. We are human being at our best. We have been created for a time a little lower than the angels, but we will never be anything but human beings. And therein lies a mysterious glory because God has honored, even above angelic existence, he has honored what it looks like to be a human being. How can I add to that? <laughs> right, cup of tea. I was, taking, I was taking notes back here. No, I'm kidding. No, I know that you did want to say something, John, but then you started nodding off. Right? <laughs> you all are bad. No, but you know, um, I'm really, I can't add to that other than to say that, um, that when you highlighted the fact that, that uh, um, or the fact that Jesus Christ is is the is God perfect man and perfect God in one and I think it's interesting how as we submit ourselves to God the way Adam and Eve did before the fall they are more most like what God designed man to be and when Jesus Christ comes on the scene he lives his life as if to say this is what Adam and Eve missed on this is what you were intended to be like Perfectly, he, he he submits himself to the Father. He lives himself. He lives as as a servant. Uh, yet at the same time, he is he is God. He has this this blend of the two. Um, 
So I, I just want to add within the framework of with, the hypostatic union, right. so that he has two natures. He has two natures existing side by side, right. but not commingling. Not Otherwise, we have a third other, and right. it would not be God, and it would not be fully man. Right. Thus, he could not offer um, propitiation right. for us on behalf of God, and he cert- not, certainly couldn't add um, sal- act in the area of salvation right. and be our vicarious savior on behalf of man. We don't want to go off um, <coughs> off track here because we've got a couple of things to, to cover before we, we, we finish. Can we just go back and, uh, and I'm thinking about the listeners again here, just go back and look at Lucifer, look at what occurred there and why uh, this led to the position of the fall. Why this had a, uh, uh, this was a direct result of what we saw happen with Adam and Eve. Why the, what was the, this? The, the Lucifer and the devil, uh, and this invasion. How, how did that occur? And and what was that? Uh, what was that significance upon the period of the fall? We're talking. We're talking about Genesis three and the fall, and where Lucifer came from, or what? Yes. How is? That's a very good question. <laughs> It's, um, you know, what's interesting is that, um, and, and I'm sorry, I'm really referring no. to chapter two rather than I am three, but I, I'm just trying to build up a picture of how how Lucifer came into it, how the devil came into it, and how Adam and Eve eventually in chapter three were bushwhacked. Well, you know, what's interesting is, is that... That was a good word, wasn't it? <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> Brilliant word. Brilliant word. Especially take for an up. Englishman. <laughs> um, you know, what's interesting is that actually uh, Genesis 2 actually sets it up for Genesis 3 because it says at the end of Genesis 2 that the man and his wife were, were naked and not ashamed. And that word naked is, is a word that is used in uh, Genesis 3 verse 1 to describe craftiness of the serpent. It's a play on words, actually, as if to say uh, they are they are being there's a I'm gonna say it's a, there's a setup, but there's a uh, it anticipates what's going to happen in Genesis three with the serpent. But but the word naked is actually used in the context of pure, pure, right? But then there's a word that's very similar. It's, it's, a, it's a play on it, words. It's like in love, love and hate is a very fine line. Right. There's the a, there's a play on words. What's interesting <clears throat> here, though, is first of all we have to back up a little bit, is because. Um, Adam and Eve are placed in Eden. They're placed in the Garden of Eden, which uh, we don't know exactly where it's at, but Eden was a general place. The, the Garden, we always think of this you know, great garden, which it probably was, but the word garden refers to a walled-off area, a place of protection, a place of an enclosure. And I have, to, I have to bring this up because the question has to come of protection from what? Okay. In the Garden of Eden, you have this picture of this perfect um, place that's shielded from danger, a place that, in fact, later on when they do sin and are cast out from the garden, that God has to send an angel, a cherubim, to protect that place. It is a place where God and mankind has have perfect fellowship and relationship with one another. Okay, So in one sense in Genesis 2, we do have the question of what exactly is being protected and from what and from who. We don't know yet until we get to Genesis 3, and we don't know where in the world this serpent has come from because he mentions in Genesis 1 that everything he created was good, 
Uh, the only thing that was not good was the fact that man was alone, and God took care of that with the creation of woman. Now we have the serpent in Genesis 3, the snake, who, as it says, was more crafty than more, all the beasts of the field. And clearly this serpent is not good. The serpent is has, has something has evil intentions in mind. We don't know where he comes from. The text does not tell us, uh, or the text does not tell us who is controlling the serpent, who is speaking through the serpent. We don't know who, but we get some indications that Genesis 2 with the Garden of Eden, that this place of relationship with God is protected. Protected from who? We meet the character in Genesis 3 of the serpent. We find out later in Scripture that, that Satan, Lucifer, is the one who's behind it. We don't know that yet in Genesis 3, but later on in Scripture it is revealed that Satan's the one who, who speaks through the serpent, that Satan is the only one who, who wants to leave, lead a revolt against God uh, because he himself wanted to be God and he himself was cast out of heaven, uh, we understand, by his very pride of trying to dethrone God. And the very thing that he was thrown out of heaven for was the very thing he was leading Adam and Eve to try to do was to replace God to sort of be on God's throne. And is 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 there a similarity between you? You talked about um, that fellowship being broken in the garden, and and ultimately God ejecting man out of the garden. Is is there a, a similar similarity here uh, in the way that? At the uh, the final hour, uh, in 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 sight of the promised land, that Moses broke God's trust, and and then God said to Moses, "I'm sorry, matey, but you you cannot go to the promised land. So you are now ejected from that." Is is there a similarity in those two events, in the way that God serves His? His his wrath, as it were. Uh, perhaps, perhaps I, I even see there's even a similarity with the fact, the very fact that God's very temple, His very presence that dwells with the children of Israel, Moses included, is a reestablishment of sort of speak of what they had back in the Garden of Eden, and it pictures what hap- what will happen in the future with uh, believers dwelling with God in heaven and, and with with Christ here on earth. Um, where sin and death are excluded. In fact, sin and death are thrown into Hades, it says in Revelation 21, as if to say God is going to remove any uh, causes of separation, any any uh, thing that would, would, would uh, disrupt this fellowship or this relationship with God. It happened one time in the Garden of Eden. God is not going to let it happen again because of what he's done through Christ. Uh, so you you do have some of that in in, in Moses, um, but um, and I think you're right. There's the the point with Moses is that God is to be honored as holy, and and God's God takes his relationship with people very seriously, um, and he desires nothing to get in the way of our relationship with him. But it's, is, it's almost like all or nothing, though, isn't it? I mean, when. When God ejected Adam and Eve out of the garden, I mean, he, he ejected everything, didn't he? That that was it. That was his creation. Just as with Moses, here's Moses, this profound individual who had left, led these people uh, under God's uh, um, mandate to the promised land. And then God, at the end of it, takes this man who had done so much and says, sorry, well, it, it's it's not the end of the story, though, <laughs> because God anticipates that that would happen. God anticipates that 
mankind would do this. He understood, he understood that mankind would do that. So he already had the plan in place of what he would do. But he doesn't, he doesn't set the plan in place until the action actually occurs. In other words, he doesn't set up the plan of redemption until the fall occurs. Knowing that man is placed in what is called a probationary period, man is given a choice. And it's a choice where, where God said, where he gives man a choice that says, you can either live in dependence on me or independence of me. It's your choice. When mankind decides to go independently of God, then God's plan of redemption is set into place. And that's where you have, of course, the rest of the scriptures are talking about that plan. So it doesn't, it doesn't throw God off course. He doesn't take man and just kind of throw him off and put him in a trash can. It is more of uh, it's God anticipates this. I mean, he doesn't take him by surprise. Um, and right off the bat from Genesis 3, we see uh, a glimpse or a hint of this plan because in Genesis 3.15, which uh, I believe is a sort of a, a picture of, of the gospel, uh, he says that uh, – uh, he promises one who will uh, crush uh, the sea, the serpent, and and what the serpent has done. And you see the fact that the rest of the, of the scriptures speak of or allude to this and and develop this idea. May, may I ask just one more question? The way in which uh, God banned Adam and Eve from the garden um, was that treatment similar to? what he had to accomplish with, with Abraham uh, and, and with all these profound characters in the Old Testament who were in so many ways paganistic or whatever their issues were, did God see so much in Adam and Eve when he did eject, from the, eject them from the garden that he knew that he with them ultimately in fellowship and love would put right? Um. I want to be very, very clear, and and please appreciate my term that I'm going to employ uh, as not an intention to be crass nor a devaluation nor demarcation on individuals who suffer with the malady of bipolarism. But I want to make sure that we do not pre, uh, uh, present God as bipolar or or extreme in any way. Um, these are not things that do not describe God. God is not the mad child who is uh, almost, uh, certainly not directly, but almost indirectly presented in open theism as his original plan or intention was one way. He was caught off surprise, and so God is kind Kind of crashing all the toys and taking his own home. Um, uh, that, that's not the way that this is intended to be. Um, I, I want to present something here, and I want to make sure that this is absolutely clear to us all. When we talk about God banishing Adam and Eve from the garden, um, we no sooner see him deal with mankind. By the way, that's not the first of his activities. He first enters the garden in the regularity or the normalcy of his walk, knowing that mankind is hiding. Then he opens up conversation by way of inquiry or question. Then, upon asking questions, he covers mankind, uh, the man and the woman, having slaughtered an animal on their behalf. And then, from that standpoint, he pronounces the judgment upon them then he banishes them from the garden, but he does not banish them without hope, if you will. And and I want to be very clear because when you even look at the correction of the prophets, you cannot look at their correction 
or discipline without an immediate message of hope. That's how the whole pattern of the Bible goes throughout. So it's not just God is angry and he banishes. That is not an appropriate, full-orbed picture of God throughout the text of Scripture. Yeah, let me just add to that portion of the, of the prophets with Israel uh, later on who constantly didn't get it. Uh, who, but yet God graciously sends warnings and prophets to woo them back, in fact. Uh, Hosea, who, who is told to marry uh, Gomer, who is either a prostitute or will become a prostitute, is a picture of his relationship with Israel. And he tells, uh, he tells uh, Hosea to go find your wife and buy her back and bring her back and, 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 and woo her back, so to speak. This is a picture of God, God's love for his people. Um, so he, it is, it is the, there's the warnings of the judgments, the prophets, yet there's always, there's always a message of hope. And you see that, the, the balance that's always there, um, you know, within, uh, with, and, and I think also the point of the fact that, that God knows that Adam and Eve, they have fallen, um, and he takes the time to, to cover them, and yet, he doesn't just banish them. He sends them away covered, but yet with the promise of hope. And then he begins the rest of, of the story of redemption. And what's interesting is that when you look at all of creation, angels are not offered a savior. Lucifer and the demons, the fallen angels are not offered a savior. Mankind is, which I think is, is amazing because God did not have to save anybody. God did not have to do a single thing. God graciously decided, in fact, God did not have to send his only begotten son. But he did graciously for, for fallen man, who, mankind who turned their backs on, on him, yet he still desires this fellowship, this relationship with us. Uh, that speaks volumes that, that of, of all the cre- of creatures. He didn't die for dogs or for cats. He died for human beings. Let me just, and, and, and let me just forward that point. And there's something so beautiful there that you said, John, and, and I wish I had time to deal with that because when we talk about the essentiality or non-essentiality of, of the redemptive act of God, it was a non-essential. He didn't have to do it, but it became consequentially essential Having chose to love us, he at the same time then chose that redemption is absolutely necessary and encumbered upon him. But to just finish this point really quick, when we talk about God banishing them, we can often look at this and we can say, Adam and Eve, oh, gee, God, did you have to take it that seriously? Or Moses, oh, my goodness. I mean, I weep over that one. God, that's a little overkill, isn't it? I want to be very clear and say what we're talking about is not human treason. We're talking about cosmic treason. The second thing is no one knows the depth of the darkness of sin more than God. So it's like me leaving the doctor and and being told that I have cancer. Well, I think I know what cancer means. But a cancer specialist knows the gravity of what I'm leaving that office with with. That's why he or she dares to say you have a week to live or two weeks or a month to live. When God is dealing with sin, he's not dealing with something that'll take a parcel of property and be satisfied. He's not dealing with something that can simply be exercised through a a verbal apology. He's dealing with such a contaminant that no sooner than (coughs) we leave chapter 3, 
then it will become the germ that enables the first son to premeditate the first murder viciously upon his brother, claim he has no culpability or responsibility over watching his brother's life, and therein will become not only the first murder, but the first grave with the first blood that cries from the ground, and that kind of horrendous pattern would fill the earth to such an extent that its vicious nature would have to be cut off in Genesis 6 through 9. And then with Noah, it would then respread because he's contaminated with the same sort of germ that's going to result in the same kind of havoc and darkness and diabolical uh, debauchery that we see occurring in today's degraded society. So when God says banishment, We have to understand that he's not speaking lightly because the malady is not light. But here's what I want to say. Only God knows the deepest depth and utter darkness of sin. But only God at the same time knows the highest height and the glorious illumination of redemption. And so when he says hope, he says hope in a tone that our ears cannot even hear. For whatever hope we believe we've grasped in Jesus, believe me when I say there is far more. So if the darkness is exceedingly gross, be certain that the light is overwhelmingly great. Because God is the one who understands the apex of the definition of both. And how does he describe the trauma and the triumph of both? Both are seen in Jesus. How tragic is sin? The cross. How triumphant is redemption? The resurrection. Just and just to add to that, the fact that if if God God's the one who God desires relationship with us more than we realize. It is God who comes searching for us when we are hiding in the in the shrubbery, so to speak, and, and trying to stay away from him. He's the one who's walking in the garden looking for us. He's the one who desires that relationship with us that we don't realize. And the fact that Jesus Christ, who the scripture says, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. And while Jesus is there on the cross, he says, Father, why have you forsaken me? And it's at that point where God the Father, in one sense, turns his back on his own son, whom he has known for all eternity, because that's at that point where the sins of the world are laid on him and not even the Son of God with sin laid upon him can get away with it, so to speak. Uh, can be um, God does not look over that as if it, nothing happened. He turns his, his back in one sense um, on his Son. Now, of course, he does recognize that the Son, his shedding of blood, has paid for the sin. And, of course, the Son is raised and alive today. But that is how serious, just to add to what CL said, we don't understand how serious sin is. We, we think sin is just a, a light offense. And we think sin is, is, is like catching a cold. It is the deadliest, the, most de- the deadliest form of disease one can ever have. And it's so drastic and so contagious and so horrendous that the, the means to rectify it have to be serious as well all for the purpose of reestablishing fellowship and relationship with God. God has to go through. Because if God wanted to, if there was any other way, Jesus says, Father, if there's, another, if there's another way, let this cup pass from me. 
And if God, who is all-knowing, had another plan, he would have done it. Apparently, sin was that bad where the only remedy for this sin, sickness, you call it, the only remedy was the death and the sacrifice of the Son of God. This is how serious sin is. Yet, at the same time, it shows how glorious his love for us is that he would actually do it and that we have tremendous opportunity to relate to God, to be with God. And he's done it all. There's not one thing I have to do or you have to do to pay for sin. We don't have to um, die on the cross. We don't have to punish ourselves in the sense of, of seeking redemption or seeking atonement. The, the atonement of, of Christ was sufficient. One might ask, how grave is sin? In response, one might say, sin cannot be compared to a dark color possessed or held by men on earth. For were one to grab a black crayon or a permanent black marker or the darkest night in which the skies were bereft of star and light, they would still not know the dark depth of sin. Were one to figure therein the sin of the murderer, the rapist, the individual who molests, the vehement, violent man, the man whose tongue is vile and full of cursings against heaven and earth, still <coughs> that would not be enough to describe the darkness of sin. In order to describe darkness of sin, one could not look within heaven alone, nor earth coupled with it, nor hell. One would have to look in heaven, earth, and hell and look at them from the inception of sin to its consummation and see all of that coupled upon the furrowing brow of our Savior which brought him both to his knees at this moment in which hemohydrosis, blood and water, fell out of his pores onto the earth. With great stress did he cry, Father, let this cup pass from me. So if we're wondering concerning the darkness of sin, a brief commentary may be found in our own hearts, but not a sufficient commentary. For we would have to not only couple all of our hearts together, we would have to couple the hearts of every demonic spirit that has ever walked throughout time. We'd have to couple the hearts of those who even now suffer the dastardly penalty that is deserving upon their souls. We would have to look then, not within their darkness, in order to see how horrid sin is. We would simply need to look within the watery eyes of the Savior. And therein, as we look within his own eyes, we could take somehow the ash from the volcano, the ash from the soot, the darkness from all of our sins put together, mixed along with all of the colors, and we could hear our Savior whisper, and still you do not know. I do not know how dark it is, but I do know this. Take his red blood and allow it to run through heaven and through earth and into hell itself. 
washing over the deepest trenches of our thoughts, our imaginations, what we are capable of, that we know what we are capable of, that we do not know, coupled with all who have existed and all who ever shall be. And when we've taken all of that together, one drop of that pure blood will rush over it. And therein we see holiness. And therein we see light. And therein we see purity. So that in the universe, we have two things that we hardly know. We hardly know how dark sin is. And we hardly know how utterly light, bright, and holy God is. And yet if I want to know the darkness of sin, I have some modicum of awareness by looking in my own soul. And also, ironically, if I want to know how pure His holiness is, again, I have some modicum of awareness by looking into a soul that has been purified by the blood of Jesus. Therein lies a sacred tension, but therein lies a sacred bliss to know what He's washed me from, namely, all of my sins. With that said, gentlemen, would you just kindly give a very brief review of Genesis 2 in preparation for our program next week on Genesis 3. Well, I can give a summation, um, but if I had my wish, we would touch chapter 2 because I hardly think that we've touched it at all. (laughs) Uh, So I'm probably not the best person to give that if we're going to move to chapter 3. And so John uh, in bashful tone i surrender to thee i think you know john it might be that we'll be continuing chapter two next week well actually i have a solution we are gonna we can talk about genesis two and three and the reason is because in genesis two one thing we can highlight and emphasize in genesis two is the relationships that god establishes between man and woman between husband and wife and of course with the rest of creation and how what that was designed to look like in Genesis 2, and then how that changed with Genesis 3, and how we are to, as, as, uh, as people, uh, sort of redeem the relationships um, that are tainted in Genesis 3. In Genesis 2, we have, of course, uh, this especially with highlighting the creation of woman and her special role with, with Eve, her, her special role as Adam's wife that she has and what she's uniquely designed to do in his life, and the two of them together are designed to do as one flesh, and how that, how that is meant to be. And then in Genesis 3, how that relationship is disrupted or torn or um, damaged in one sense because of sin, and how we can find redemption in that. Uh, and, of course, we'll see how um, in Genesis 3 how how the tempter works to try to bring this division between people. And CL, in our final 60 seconds, um, final thoughts for our listeners today. Know this, that our God's plan for us is not general. It is specific. We're not an afterthought. We are the thoughts that are on his mind. And we're special to him, oh so special. And I would that the environment of the man whose brows are filled with the pressures of life, the woman who now sits 
devoid of any self-awareness of value. The child whose life, like a candle, has barely begun to burn and already they are ready to see its stuff snuffed out due to the vicissitudes of life's issues thrown upon them as the sea beats against the rocks and wears them away slowly but surely. May I say to you, you're not a general number. You're special within the mind, within the eyes, and within the heart of God. So special that while Genesis 1 speaks of a historic, literal man and woman, and Genesis 2 further hones in on that couple, that within the framework of that couple and their speciality to God, you were in mind within the framework of that speciality, and you continue to be special to him because you're you, and you're the you that he created you to be. And he'll never love you into anything different but what is best for you, and that is you will look like the ultimate you that he's always longed for in Christ. John Cor, C.L. Mitchell, thank you so much for being here on the program today. Thank you. Thank you. And to our listeners, I hope that you have enjoyed this program uh, as much as I have. I uh, hope that uh, you will visit our website, davidgibbons.org, where you'll be able to find lots of information on this and any other program in the series. Meanwhile, wherever you are, God bless you, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america business channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericabusiness.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voiceamerica.com the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the voice america talk radio network its staff and management